lives in New Orleans, and so I've spent a lot of time in the on the southern part of Louisiana. And my parents live in southern Florida, and so we had I'd been exposed to a lot of swamps basically in my childhood, not necessarily living there, but visiting and kind of rafting through, canoeing through, whatever what have you, and I have been wanting to write a story set in a swampland, and particularly the Louisiana swampland, because to me it is one of the most eerie foreign places on earth. And there is no setting that I've personally been in where I felt more unwelcome, just naturally, like it was, uh, you go into a swamp and you know you probably aren't supposed to be there. Like there are things- And you might not come out. You might not right, come out, right. yeah. Like <laughs> lurking everywhere behind trees, in the dark water you can't see into. Just there's this sense of unease and disquiet and watchfulness. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the newest episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. On this episode, we are thrilled, and pun intended, to welcome Ashley Winstead, author of the just-released Midnight is the Darkest Hour, which has gained a starred review from Library Journal, was an October Library Reads pick, and is being shouted out everywhere. I am Ron Block. And I am Patty Callahan Henry. Ashley Winstead is the author of In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, the Last Housewife, Midnight is the Darkest Hour, Fool Me Once, and The Boyfriend Candidate. Her books have been Library Read Picks, Lone Star Picks, Best of Amazon Pick, Best of Apple Books Picks, name it, along with starred reviews from PW, Kirkus Reviews, Book Page, and Library Journal. Her work has been covered by everyone from the New York Times to Cosmopolitan to Good Morning America. Her books have been translated into over a dozen languages worldwide and optioned for film and television. Ashley holds a PhD in contemporary American literature, and she lives in Houston, where she is coming from to talk to us today. Yay. So welcome to the podcast, Ashley. We cannot wait to talk about this book. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Patty and Ron. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh my God, I'm so thrilled, especially after having read this book. I don't always do this, but every once in a while, I, and I read this electronically, so I figured out how to highlight different passages in it, and I'm like, ooh. So we're going to start with one, actually. So early on, you wrote this statement, evil has come to Bottom Springs, <laughs> and that really sets the book in motion. Can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about? And then in true friends and fiction style, what is the book really about? Ooh, love that. Yeah, so this book, Midnight is the Darkest Hour, it's my third thriller, and I went 
as I love to do, just in a very different direction from my previous book. So this is a small town murder mystery set in really far south coastal Louisiana town. And the book opens with a skull being pulled out of the local swamp, Starry Swamp. And this is in a town called Bottom Springs, as you mentioned in that, in that passage. And this is really firmly, staunchly Southern Baptist country. There hasn't been a homicide in Bottom Springs, to anyone's knowledge, in decades. And so no one knows who the skull belongs to or how it got into the swamp. And it's causing, as you might imagine, fear, terror in among the people of Bottom Springs. The only person in town who knows exactly who the skull belongs to and how it got there is the preacher's daughter, 23-year-old Ruth Cornier, who is our protagonist. Yep. And she believes she knows exactly who it belongs to and how it got there because she's the one who put it there. And her deepest, darkest secret has now literally become unburied. And she needs to figure out what she's going to do to... A, stop the sheriff from kind of sniffing, scenting out that she's behind it. And B, maybe redirecting the blame and the punishment, if she can, toward people who actually really deserve it, she feels. You know, people who are are really guilty um, and deserve some punishment. So that's the kind of little nutshell for this book. But it's Southern Gothic dark murder mystery vibes there. Beautiful. Well, I... I'm a preacher's daughter. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But before we dive into that and how you kind of dead on faced the fundamentalist movement and the damage it causes, before we go there, I want to talk a bit about how this is a little bit of a departure for you. Yeah. And I want I want to ask you what the inspiration was. I love the idea of talking about where does a story come from? Is there any way you can point to the first seeds of inspiration or what you, where you think this story sprang from? Oh, yeah. I always, I like crystallize those moments in my mind and keep those memories with books. So I always mm. can go back to that first moment. And for Midnight, it was a combination of like a craft slash aesthetic urge or desire I had mixed with this message or this... Um, a kind of subject that I really wanted to write. So on the craft end, I have been dying to write a book, a thriller that felt really, really eerily like it was a supernatural or maybe fairy tale-esque or just really walked that thin line between supernatural and, and natural in order to keep my readers constantly on edge, wondering if this book was going to suddenly dip, you know, into the otherworldly. So I, I just, I heard the narrative voice for this book in my head that was really kind of fairy tale-esque. So that was one thing. And then I actually sent this to my agent as the, the pitch for this book. But I, I feel like all of my thrillers in particular are excavations of my past, of like certain moments in my past, milestones. Mm-hmm. And for me, I kept thinking about myself at 17 years old And I was very Ruth-like, Ruth Cornier, uh, the protagonist, exceptionally shy, a huge bookworm, and someone who just always followed the rules, 
really, really closely. And then I fell in love with this guy who was a total rebel bad boy. I mean, like not in really in a, it was charming to me at the time, but uh, my poor parents, I must have given them, you know, like, like just so many moments of utter, utter fear because he was actually like a felon in and out of jail. <laughs> like, um, yeah. But I met him at church. And so at first he was like sanctioned because I met him at our Southern Baptist church anyway. And basically I was ready to burn the world down for this guy and thought that for a long time that that was kind of a unique experience only to learn pretty much everyone with their first love experience is shares that there's something about that first love. And I think young women in particular maybe trend a little bit more towards choosing someone who's very, very wrong and having that like burn the world down experience. So I pitched the book to my agent and I said, I want to write a book about that really awful guy that you date when you're a teenager, but you will forsake everything for him right off into the sunset, Bonnie and Clyde it all the way to the end. And I want to write a book where that's the central relationship but my readers, I've pulled one over on my readers because even though they know it's wrong, I want them to be rooting for that and like be in the headspace that you're in as a teenager. So that was the double, double inspiration for this book. Oh, I love talking about inspiration because I can do the same thing. I can go back and I can say that was the first seed. Now a thousand other seeds end up in that murky subconscious soil, but I can almost always name the first seed seed of it. It like crystallizes in your head. Yes. I love that. Well, because for me, it's the touchstone. So if you're lost in the book, there's this kind of cornerstone or touchstone that you say, I'm going to go back to that. That is the thing. That was the driving force behind it. I've gotten too far away from that and then maybe pull it back in, which leads to the Southern Gothic setting of Bottom Springs. Talk about creating that as you approached this foreboding world to tell the story. Yeah, so I have family who lives in New Orleans, and so I've spent a lot of time in the um, the southern part of Louisiana, and my parents live in southern Florida, and so we had I'd been exposed to a lot of swamps basically in my childhood, not necessarily living there, but visiting and kind of rafting through, canoeing through, whatever, what have you. Um, And I have been wanting to write a story set in a swampland and particularly the Louisiana swampland, because to me, it is one of the most eerie foreign places on earth. And there is no setting that I've personally been in where I felt more unwelcome just naturally, like it was, uh, you go into a swamp and you, you know, you probably aren't supposed to be there. Like there are things. And you might not come out. You might not right, come out. Right. Yeah. Like <laughs> lurking everywhere behind trees, in the dark water you can't see into. Just there's this sense of unease and disquiet and watchfulness. But they're also astoundingly beautiful. Right. And so I thought, what better for this book, what better setting for a book that toes the line between otherworldly and eerie and and real world than a swamp? Because I think it just naturally is like our real world kind of fairy tale. And I also, I feel like I don't belong in swamps, but there are a lot of people who are so 
well adapted to living in the woods or living in swamps or living in all these inhospitable to me places. So I loved the idea of turning a dangerous place on its head and making it a refuge for people who are outcasts in society, which is part of what I was hoping to do with Ruth and Everett. That is fascinating. And as you're talking, it reminds me, I grew up in central New York, but we lived near a swampland. And so that's what the connection was I had to the book. I kept thinking, why is this so fascinating to me? Because it's fear and beauty at the same time. And it's exactly what I am familiar with. Were you seeing that swamp in your head? Really? Yes. I every every inch of it, every little bit of it, everything that they found and turned over. And when they slip into the water, every every bit of it was crazy. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But I want to know a little bit more about Ruth because um, she is certainly a compelling character. And she kind of really grabs the reader's attention because you want to know more. You want to know who she is, what makes her. And, of course, we find out as we read along in the book. You talked a little bit about her, but how did you really bring her voice forward and flesh her out as a character? You know, it's so funny because this is my first book I've ever written where I finally understand what other writers mean when they say a character's voice came to them. That's never happened to me before. Writing, I've been so, had to be so intentional about crafting the voice and thinking so carefully about um, what this character would say because this is her headspace and this is how she's been brought up. But for Ruth, it just flowed. And I don't know if that's because, yeah, or like it's because I was channeling some younger version of myself or I gave myself a little bit of a freedom with Ruth to let her voice be a little bit closer to my natural voice. I really don't know. But she flowed And she sounded a lot different than my normal writing style. So who knows what's going on there. But yeah, Ruth is, um, I hope, will be really relatable to readers because she is the the reader, you know, in all of us. She kind of epitomizes. She is this this shy bookworm, this girl who could have, is really smart, could have had a lot of potential um, to do great things, but she had the unfortunate... Uh, reality of being born to her mother and her father, who are the kind of pillars, like almost the mayor and the mayoress of of Bottom Springs, being the preacher and the preacher's wife in this very strict fundamentalist Southern Baptist uh, church, holy fire that everyone attends. And so Ruth has understood her whole life that her number one responsibility is to be seen and not heard and to not bring shame on her parents and to be this sort of model girl for everyone else to look at and, and say like, okay, the Corniers have raised this, their, their daughter, right. And for her, that means, and she says this a few times throughout the book, but being a wisp of a girl and kind of just haunting the background of photographs. And that really is the only mark that she's been anywhere. It's just that, you know, kind of spectral presence. So she has been longing for more in silence for all the years of her life. And her bridge to more, kind of path to more, is books. Like for so many of us growing up um, in, in either small towns or places where we feel misunderstood or like a misfit. So she, uh, a lot of books are banned in Bottom Springs. And um, I know this is hitting very time, uh, at a very timely yes, moment when yes, we're is. all having book bans around the country. So... I was very eager to, you know, kind of like have my little say about how harmful that is um, mm-hmm. in this book. 
but also was drawing that straight from my upbringing in the church that, um, you know, I was part of as a teenager in which, you know, no boy, boy and girl wizards were, were demonized and you you couldn't, uh, twilight. Oh my God. And I know we'll get to the twilight of it all, but just, this is the kind of atmosphere, the kind of place where Ruth is growing up and, so she smart, starts to cultivate what she calls small rebellions. And uh, it's reading books she's not supposed to. And then it starts to snowball, um, having priorities other than God and her parents. Um, you know, just her friendship with Everett. All of these things become uh, bigger and bigger. And so I really wanted Ruth to be kind of the every teenage girl, because we are with Ruth in this book from ages 17 to 23, the youngest protagonist I've written so far. And I, I was hoping that readers would look back and see themselves as a young adult and see, you know, trying to make their way in the world and distinguish who they are and what they want out of life outside of what they've been told they should want and what they've been told about who they are. So she's, she's on a journey, that's for sure. Eating better is something we want to be convenient and easy. With Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals, every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. I'm looking forward to over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. What are you waiting for? Let's get started today and get after our goals. Fuel up fast with Factors restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prep, no mess. With Factor, there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Sign up and save. They've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Join us and head to factormeals.com slash fiction50 and use code fiction50 to get 50% off. That's code fiction50 at factormeals.com slash fiction50 to get 50% off. Bedside Matters is the podcast for all the latest medical news and answers to your questions. Hosted by respected physician Dr. David Kipper, comedian Anna Vicino, and writer-producer Peter Tilden. Plus, we have special guests like Danny DeVito. I was marveling. It was such a life-saving moment. You like Houdini. Steve Martin and Martin Short. We were working and Marty had this Christmas opportunity to fly home and see his grandkids and his children. And he gets off the plane and has COVID. It was a Home Alone sequel except for a seven-year-old with COVID. Charlie Day. David, thanks for keeping me alive. And thanks for keeping Danny alive so we could keep the show on the air for as long as possible. And many more. New episodes of Bedside Matters drop every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. She is. It's quite a journey. That's why her voice came. Yeah. That's why her voice came to you so clear. And it's such a gift when a character's voice comes that way because it doesn't always happen. No, it doesn't. And I'm glad Ruth did. And and you mentioned, I mentioned it earlier, and you talked about your upbringing, but as a preacher's kid, I loved seeing you face the fundamentalist movement head on and the damage it causes a psyche, especially a young girl who's told to be obedient, be quiet, stand in the back. And you even include this subject as a trigger warning at the front of the book. So talk to us about how fundamentalism is used 
to keep people in line and your novel and is harmful enough to need a trigger warning? Yeah. Oh, I love that question. So I was raised by parents who weren't religious for quite a number of years in my life and then became super religious when I was around 14, 15. They really found God. Yeah. Yeah. What a time, right? Like try to pick an age that isn't in the middle of transformation at the moment anyway, and then throw in a good religious transformation. Yeah. The collision was just like, you know, it was, it was predestined to, to happen. Oh gosh. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, I know, throw, throw it all into the fire, all of this stuff. So I um, had the very bewildering experience of watching my entire family, and I'm the oldest of four kids, and we're four and four years, super close-knit family, and everyone is, I feel like I'm sitting around watching my family become super, super fundamentalist uh, Southern Baptist as I'm kind of like sitting in the pews listening to, you know, the, the kind of liturgy about women and, and all sorts of other things and thinking like, this just doesn't sound right. Why is this mesmerizing these, you know, my family members and these people that I love? And at the same time that, I mean, just like what a perfect storm, at the same time that I, my family was just like being pulled closer and closer into this religious community, And this, again, like I mentioned, this is a community that was just like, you don't listen to secular music. You don't read secular Mm -hmm. books. Mm -hmm. I mean, like... The movies. The movies are out. I mean, but you know what I did read that I was encouraged to read? The Left Behind series. I don't know. Oh, yeah. So you're scared to death. (laughs) The other one, The Left Behind, and also the ones about the demons following you. What was that one? This Present Darkness. Oh my God. Well, I'm going to go read read it now because it sounds awesome. But at the time, (laughs) this, yes, I don't, I didn't read that one, but I was only like on the Left Behind series and I, it like altered my brain in a way I'm afraid is permanent because it's just like, you're terrified of being left behind. And you're looking for apocalyptic clues and like, the way the leaves fall and on, you know, the patterns on the the street is just like all this magical thinking. Anything on the news. Anything on the news. You're like, is this it? It's finally happening. You know, it's just like this really weird, paranoid uh, way of being. And my whole family was in it for years. And so as, as they're kind of sinking more in, I'm growing apart from them as this is kind of like a, a dividing force. And as teenage girls are want to do, you know, starting to experiment with going out to parties and being interested in boys. And, and that just further created this divide to the point where it got, uh, my parents and I, I think were like at war, like it was full blown war. I was public enemy number one in my family. You know, the bad girl, I came home from school one day. Meanwhile, I was a straight A student at an academic magnet school, you know, like I was not a bad girl by any means, but, um, I came home from school one day, opened my bedroom door, and my mother was sitting at my desk chair. It was a swivel chair. And I have this vivid memory of her swiveling around, you know, like a villain in a Bond movie and saying, Ashley, I'm so glad you're home. We absolutely need to talk about the state of your soul. And I was like, oh, God. Oh my <laughs> so God. then I had to listen to, you know, lots of stuff. So anyway, um, I come by this like religious trauma honest is what all Honestly, of this is. Yeah. And my parents are no longer 
involved uh, in religion whatsoever. So it, it had its time and it's gone. But, you know, if religion is something that has always really fascinated me because I feel like such a spiritual person where I love the idea of connection. Um, I love the idea that there's something more than what we can see us human beings. There's more to this life than, than what we know. But I'm so suspicious now of any organized religion, whether it's Christianity or, or you know, like what have you, um, especially really fundamentalist or evangelical strains of any religion. And so I think what's been a really interesting conversation that I've gotten to have as I've gotten older is conversations with like ex-religious trauma or like religious trauma, ex-religion Christianity girlies or whatever we're calling ourselves. And it's just so fun to kind of like share our experiences. It's so cathartic, I guess, is more than fun. And just have this whole community of people who have been there, read those left behind books, you know, are similarly traumatized. And I've been, I understand my, that my experience was on the light end of religious tr- trauma. And um, I think what I explore in Midnight is a much more forceful and damaging version of what fundamentalism can look like. And so to me, that warrants a trigger warning. And I have a lot of respect for spiritualism and a desire for, you know, peace, goodness, and transcendence of our mortal lives. But I have a complete and utter lack of respect and and full-on animosity for the way that religions are used as systems of control and oppression, which I think they too often are. And for a moment, writing this book I, I worried, is this going to feel dated because we've all moved on as a country? Like, we recognize organized religion is bad, right? And evangelical. No. Oh, my gosh. It's sadly more timely than ever as we watch, you know, these book bans unfold. It's oftentimes, crazy. you know, led by uh, the religious right. As we watch the Southern Baptist, you know, organization of churches decide women really can't be in charge and just the, the like uncovering of trauma, trauma and crime in within organized religion. So unfortunately, it is still as timely as, as it ever was. But yeah, I wanted to kind of take this on in Midnight and have there be not simply villainous people, but like a villainous system. And that, uh, thank you for letting me have my like religion spiel or, or rant or vent or whatever that was. Ashley, I could have written the rant for you. So we're good. We're yeah. good. I'm just saying, with the listeners people. can't see me, but I'm like, naughty, yeah. naughty, naughty. And, and the damage it causes, I think you said you the time is come and gone. I think the damage that some of the harder parts of that cause, not the good parts, but the harder parts are only now being acknowledged because it's really terrifying to step forward and say a a spiritual system that I grew up in that was wonderful and good in its ways was also, by the way, really awful. And so I, I, I don't think, I think it's the opposite. I don't think you are anywhere near past time for it. So, 
Thank you. No, never, because that. it always seems to re-emerge, too. It, it comes in back in different forms. forms. Yeah, forms. yeah. So I, I'm sitting here going like, oh, you are Ruth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but at the same time, though, I, I got a chill, too, when you did it, because the, the quote I'm about to read and ask you about is is kind of r- almost what you just said. In the book, you brought Twilight into the into the mix. And there's a quote from Ruth's mother. This this is the occult book I saw on the news, the girl who falls in love with a demon. And yet for Ruth, it's actually how she found hope all in that book. So talk about inserting that title in and the story of that and how it's a love letter to the young girl who read Twilight. Yeah. Oh, that's so perfectly put. It is. This book is my love letter to young girls who are falling in love, um, being told what they should want and where and how they should be and um, are struggling to, you know, kind of break out of all of those mental and cultural and familial prisons and forge themselves in a true and authentic way. So I chose Twilight. I knew that Ruth was going to have a book that she just had this zealous love for, you know, this this book that saved her. Um, and I chose Twilight for a few reasons. Uh, one, just because to this day, it is such a controversial book mm-hmm. in that people <laughs> love it so much and they're so obsessed. And boy, do people love to hate it. Like there are entire podcasts devoted to tearing apart Twilight and <laughs> criticizing it. Like it has gotten under people's skin for better and worse. And I wanted to choose a book that really owned and was associated with simpering uh, femininity, a kind of, of like female love, young female love that was embarrassing and cringeworthy. This is like the voice of, you know, the establishment or, or yeah. um, you know, the literary elite or just, a, you know, guys, frankly. So I, I just wanted to choose something. So Ruth, I, I knew it had to be Twilight. Um, Ruth finds Twilight, which is a banned book because, you know, it's an occult book. There's, it's full of That's vampires right. and werewolves. And she finds it at 14. She's the perfect age to find it. She reads it and falls in love. She feels like Bella is her. She connects the way you're supposed to do with books. Um, and she fall, falls in love with Edward And she already feels so alienated from her parents and from this religious community um, that she doesn't feel like she fits in with. And Twilight, like, gives her a place to belong. And for better or worse, she feels all the passion and connection and fervor she knows she's supposed to feel for Jesus and God and the church. But she feels it for Edward Cullen. Um, So that's a bit of—she knows that's a bit of a problem and a thing that she needs to keep a secret. But— I was convinced in writing this book that the same feelings and desires that turn people towards religion, like a desire to belong to a community, a desire to be seen and loved for oneself in all their, in all your messy flaws, and the promise that you can transcend those flaws and transcend into some sort of better world, that those same impulses that drive people toward religion, like Christianity, also drive a lot of people toward romantic love, you know, as we're like seeking this completion of ourself in another um, and this transfer- transformation of ourself in another. 
So, you know, there's this question of like, why, why was Twilight such a phenomenon? Why do, did people, young girls in particular, love Twilight? And I try to answer those questions in the book or like yes. provide, I'm sure there's a million answers for that, but try to provide some ones that I find really compelling. And for Ruth, she falls in love with the idea of being loved the way Edward loves Bella because no one has ever loved her that way before. So it's the most fantastical sort of transcendent experience that she can imagine is, is, and what Edward does to Bella is he takes her out of her boring, you know, small town life and expands her world. And, and Ruth is looking for someone to save her in that same way for better and for worse, which the worst of it is something she has to grapple with later in the book. So yeah, I really loved the idea of exploring a young woman's desire for romantic love and in particular to kind of harken back to what I told my agent about the bad boy, you know, why it's so often like your first love is, is maybe a not so great person because at least for Ruth and for me, I feel like teenage girls are taught you know, feel like they want people want respect, want to be recognized for their power and potential, and yet are so often dismissed in so many ways. And so I think we're kind of taught to look for power and rebellion and all these things we feel in ourselves or want for ourselves in another person. So you're looking for that bad, that that uh, rebelliousness and that bad boyness, not so you can, so you can almost vampirically like suck that into yourself and claim it for yourself. You know, it's like a recognition of a thing you want. Anyway, that is the the twilight of it all, is trying to grapple with this book that I think um, really epitomizes our relationship to young women, teenage girls. I mean, I watched it with my daughter. Yep. You know, when those came out, she was yeah, about the same age as, as Ruth. She was 12, 13, 14. And she gobbled those books. And by the way, I let her. I love yeah, seeing good. her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so on a light, lighter, not as in less serious, but more light-filled subject, because I can see that too. I might be wrong, so tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I see the influence of Mary Oliver, or I might be reading in You're between so the right. lines. No. Oh, good. Okay. So my favorite poem by her is Wild Geese, and I see... I used it in one of my novels, The Bookshop at Water's End. And you have a line that says in your dedication to Russell, who said I did not have to be good. And I was like, bing, bing, bing. And then in your author note, I think you said it's about coming to love your animal's self. And those are lines from Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees. I could quote the whole thing, but it goes on to say, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. So tell me that was your influence because I can see it. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. I feel like, oh yes, you're, you're totally spot on. I grew up, I feel like Mary Oliver raised me in some ways, you know, (laughs) she like raised, I don't know. She, she raised the first book of poetry that I ever got was her new, new and selected poems, I think, green volume. And it was given to me by my uncle, Russell, who um, is the Russell that I mentioned in my dedication. Ah, okay. And he's the one who put Mary Oliver in my, 
in my hands, in my brain. And my uncle is someone who my entire life has been the person who has always been there to say, you know what? There aren't two paths or three paths. There's a whole wide world of options for you. And whoever you are, that's okay. And I love whoever you are. He's just been that constant voice that's showing me that there's another option. Yeah. Just, God, I wish everyone has a person. Wish everybody had that person. I know. Because it means the difference. It all, it's all the difference. And he loves Mary Oliver and her, the the transcendence and peace that she finds in the natural world. And I knew this, this book is like steeped in Mary Oliver because I knew that I wanted Ruth and Everett to find their own happiness and solace and peace and transcendence in the natural world. And it's a natural world that scares everyone else, right? Like her, Ruth's mom is like, don't you go into that swamp, you know, like, and, and yeah, there are dangerous things there, of course, but Ruth goes in and she learns to feel like she is a natural part of the world. Like she learns to feel at community with nature in a way that she can't find in the town of Bottom Springs. And that to me is just Mary Oliver all over. All over. So yeah, that, that beautiful appreciation for how we are animals and how that's a counter narrative to kind of like the religious impulse, which is to transcend or escape or have more. I wish somebody had given me that book when I was young. I'd, I'd keep it by my bedside. So it's gorgeous. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my God. Okay. So before we let you go, and I'm so sad that we're at this point because I've got so many things to talk about. Part two, part three, and part four <laughs> coming up. Tell everybody where they can connect with you online and on social media. Yeah, I'm at ashleywinstead.com is my website. And then on on social media, I am way too much on Instagram, like way too present. So you can find me at, at Ashley Winstead Books. That's my handle. And come chat with me if you want to talk about the ending of Midnight and you have some grievances. You know I want to talk all about that. That'll be in part four. Oh, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. I want people to really grab this book and embrace it and read it through. There's so much influence of what a great writer you are in here. And there's a lot of people need to read more about Ruth and Ever and just all these characters and the the family dynamics and just how you... And if anybody reads it, I want to hear from you on social media. So come, come talk to me. I want to talk about this book. Wait, is there a sequel? No, not to... Not that I know of. Okay. Okay, yeah. but maybe I'll be compelled at some point to end end the the torture and the mystery. But yeah. thank you so much, Ron. That means oh the world goodness. to me. It's been amazing, and a special shout out to you, our listeners, for joining us each week. Your comments and support mean everything. If you'd like to snag a copy of Midnight is the Darkest Hour, and yes, you do, please visit our Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page and help our independent bookstores. Thank you for listening, and remember to tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube 
where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.